Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. Let's take a look at our top stories. A federal judge blocking a Trump-era border rule and allowed authorities to return illegal border crossers back to Mexico. Now what happens? It may not have been the best-kept secret in politics, but former President Trump has officially let the cat out of the bag. He is running for president in 2024. We have takeaways from his announcement last night. A Republican-controlled House could launch a probe into Dr. Anthony Fauci and whether his agency funded controversial virus research in China. How does Fauci respond? Find out what celebrities lost big with the implosion of cryptocurrency exchange FTX. The $32 billion company filed for bankruptcy last week. Going back to the moon, today a rocket took off bringing test dummies within 60 miles of the moon and NASA says there may soon be real astronauts walking on the lunar surface again. In Los Angeles this morning, at least 20 police recruits were injured during their morning run when a car plowed into them. Ambulances arrived at the scene to take the injured to the hospital. Two are now in serious condition. According to Fox News, the recruits are cadets at the Sheriff's Training Academy in Whittier. The accident happened at around 6 a.m. local time when the recruits were running as part of their training session. Police have arrested a suspect believed to be the driver. Authorities say the cause of the crash is still under investigation. And a federal judge yesterday blocked a rule that makes it easier to turn away illegal immigrants at the southern border. NTD's Jessica Beatty has the details. A judge Tuesday blocked the Biden administration from using Title 42. The Trump-era policy was invoked back in March 2020. The rule allowed border authorities to quickly expel illegal border crossers back to Mexico if they posed a health threat amid the pandemic. The CDC policy continued under President Biden. But Tuesday, a judge ruled it violates the Administrative Procedure Act because the CDC failed to consider alternative measures. The ACLU is praising the end of Title 42, calling the rule inhumane and driven purely by politics. Without Title 42 in place, all illegal immigrants arrested at the border must be processed under immigration law. Shortly after that decision was reached, the Biden administration requested a stay on it. If that stay is granted, it will keep Title 42 alive through December 21st. Meanwhile, Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas Tuesday said he has no plans to resign after Republican lawmakers pressed him about it. Mayorkas is facing mounting criticism over his handling of the immigration crisis at the U.S.-Mexico border. Border Patrol reported a record 2.2 million encounters with illegal immigrants along the border in the fiscal year 2022, which ended in September. It's the first time the numbers exceeded 2 million in one year. And Texas Governor Greg Abbott has sent his first bus of illegal immigrants to Philadelphia. It was scheduled to arrive Wednesday morning. Governor Abbott's been sending illegal border crossers from Texas to sanctuary cities to protest what he calls Biden's open border policies. He says since Philadelphia's mayor fought hard to get sanctuary city status, it's an ideal place to send people. In the past, Abbott sent buses to New York, Chicago and the nation's capital. He says he'll continue doing so until the Biden administration tightens border security to prevent illegal immigrants from pouring into his state. Jessica Beatty, NTD News. 
Former President Trump is running for president again in 2024. He made the official announcement last night at his Mar-a-Lago estate. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg has more on Trump's third campaign for the Oval Office. America's comeback starts right now. Trump addressed guests at Mar-a-Lago with a sobering tone on Tuesday night. He called attention to the current state of the nation under President Biden's administration. We are here tonight to declare that it does not have to be this way. Trump decried the crisis at the southern border, record high inflation, and violent crime rates. In order to make America great and glorious again, I am tonight announcing my candidacy for President of the United States. The former president says he wants to tackle inflation and vowed to immediately reinstate border security policies like remain in Mexico if elected. He also promised to be tough when it comes to dealing with China and touted the benefits the country received from the trade war when he levied tariffs against them. We were getting hundreds of billions of dollars. Many people think that because of this, China played a very active role in the 2020 election. Just saying, just saying. Sure, that didn't happen. If Trump wins another presidential bid, it would make him only the second president in history to serve non-consecutive terms. This will not be my campaign. This will be our campaign altogether. He described the task as being not for any one individual, but as a movement involving all walks of life, ethnicities, and political backgrounds. We love both sides. We're going to bring people together. We're going to unify people. President Biden tweeted out, Donald Trump failed America following the announcement. Aides filed the official paperwork with the U.S. Federal Election Commission earlier in the day, setting up a committee called Donald J. Trump for President 2024. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Now on to some analysis surrounding Trump's announcement he's running for president again. An investigative journalist breaks down efforts to stop Trump from taking power and concerns of a repeat of 2020, which was riddled with fraud allegations. Joining us now is Lee Smith, columnist and author of The Plot Against the President. He's also the host of Over the Target on Epic TV. Great to have you on to discuss former President Trump's big announcement, Lee. Um, great to be with you this morning, Kevin, to speak about it. President Biden last week said that his administration has to demonstrate that Trump will not take power if he runs. Biden said they will use legitimate efforts of the Constitution to ensure Trump will not become president again. Do you expect Biden will use the DOJ or another federal agency to hurt Trump's chances of becoming president again? Well, certainly they've been doing that. That's what the Democrats have been doing. And Joe Biden has been part of that operation since he was Barack Obama's vice president in 2016. So I have no doubt that Joe Biden will use the Department of Justice, the FBI, and whatever instruments are under his unlawful control, the way he's weaponized these different institutions to target his political opponents. Joe Biden has just made clear what everyone has seen happening since 2016. If Joe Biden wishes to prevent Donald Trump from becoming president, then Joe Biden should focus his energies on governing the country correctly, governing the country reasonably to uh, cultivate American peace and prosperity. And then he can run against Donald Trump in 2024. That's how he can prevent him from becoming president, not by weaponizing the agencies he's, he and his progressive faction have been using since 2016 against Trump, Trump aides, and Trump supporters. 
I see what you mean, Lee. Just beat them fair and square in an election and not resort to what some have called maybe a political attack. How does the Mar-a-Lago raid, J6, how does this all play into this? Well, I mean, this is this is certainly uh, part of Joe Biden's efforts to stop to stop Donald Trump from running for president in 2024. It's never happened before. The idea that federal law enforcement agencies are weaponized to target Joe Biden's political opponents, it's sick. This is unconstitutional and it's disgusting. And it's not just the Mar-a-Lago raid. We've seen Joe Biden use the FBI to go after January 6th defendants, to go after, and, and now we understand by the way, how many FBI confidential human sources were on the grounds of the Capitol on January 6th to frame Trump supporters? We've seen them go after. Uh, we've seen them go after school parents who object to the Biden administration's push for CRT as well as trans ideology. So, again, the, the Mar-a-Lago raid is certainly a big part of it. Well, now that we've passed election Tuesday, midterms here, what do you expect to happen in 2024? I mean, how can we prevent a repeat of 2020, which saw many Americans lose faith in the U.S. elections? Yeah, uh, the, this is one of the reasons why the 2022 midterms were important and decisive, because control of different states, for instance, Arizona, now allows uh, Democrats to uh, establish the electoral procedures um, and it appears that not all of them, well, let's leave it like this. There were irregularities, again, in Maricopa County. Uh, to what extent that may have affected the vote is unclear yet. We'll see that more and more as data comes in. But the reality is, insofar as these state systems are um, riddled with problems, then that's definitely going to affect the 2024 vote. And there's no doubt that Republican voters, and in particular Donald Trump's base, his solid base of support, are going to be concerned uh, concerned going into 2024, but I'm sure highly, highly motivated as well. Yes, and in Maricopa County, we've seen fences, drones, protests, even what some reporters are calling a third-world country scene. Lee Smith, columnist and author of The Plot Against the President, so great to speak with you again. Yeah, thanks so much again. Donald Trump officially launched his quest to duplicate a feat only accomplished by one former president. If he prevails, Trump will join Grover Cleveland as the only president to leave the White House and return for a second term four years later. Entity's Daniel Monahan has more. Four of America's past presidents have tried to win a second term after losing re-election. Martin Van Buren and Herbert Hoover both attempted it, but both failed to regain the Republican nomination following defeats after their first term. Meanwhile, Theodore Roosevelt's quest to regain the presidency as a third-party candidate was unsuccessful. Before becoming president, Cleveland had served as governor of New York and mayor of Buffalo. He was first elected president in 1884 before losing in 1888 and winning again in 1892. In 1884, he narrowly defeated James G. Blaine to earn his first term. Cleveland was the only president to be married in the White House. His first child was also born in the White House, which hasn't happened since. Cleveland cracked down on railroad companies that illegally annexed federal land in the West. He also signed the Interstate Commerce Act into law. This was the first measure to establish federal regulation of the railroads and led to the creation of more government agencies. Cleveland also signed the Dawes Act of 1887. That authorized the government to break up tribal land. 
The result was the seizure of more than 90 million acres of tribal property from Native Americans. When he ran for a second term in 1888, Cleveland was defeated by Republican Benjamin Harrison. He and his wife then moved to New York City. However, Cleveland eventually found life as a private citizen unfulfilling and decided to run against the unpopular Harrison. He received his party's nomination, won the election, and the rest is history. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. As Trump preps for 2024, the recent midterms have yet to wrap up. A new development in Georgia. Senator Raphael Warnock and his Democratic Party allies have sued Georgia over early voting in the state's Senate runoff vote. The state decided on five days of early voting, but Warnock's team wants six. The runoff between Warnock and Republican challenger Herschel Walker is set for December 6th. The early voting day in question is Saturday, November 26th. The Georgia Secretary of State's office said the day falls too close to Thanksgiving and violates state law. Warnock's team argues that the law only applies to primaries and general elections, not runoffs. They want counties to be allowed to begin early voting on the 26th. The state overhauled its election laws following the controversial 2020 presidential election and two runoffs for the Georgia Senate. One of the reforms shortened the wait for a runoff from nine to four weeks, which is why it's now close to Thanksgiving. Despite the runoff and uncalled House districts, the new Congress is gearing up. Dr. Anthony Fauci responds to the possibility of a probe by House Republicans. He says he has no problem at all with it. The White House medical advisor said during a summit in Boston, quote, I'd be more than happy to discuss anything that we've done over the last several years with this outbreak since I have nothing to hide and I can defend everything we've done. Several prominent Republicans, including Congressman Jim Jordan, have said they plan on investigating Fauci. It would focus on whether Fauci's agency funded controversial virus research in China. Republican Congressman James Comer, the ranking member of the House Oversight and Reform Committee, has also said he will investigate Fauci. Comer said this is regardless of whether Fauci retires or not. Turning to Los Angeles, County Sheriff Alex Villanueva won't be given a second term. He conceded as his opponent's lead in the sheriff's race continued to grow. It makes former Long Beach Police Chief Robert Luna the new L.A. County Sheriff. Luna's campaign says he plans to reform and modernize the sheriff's department and jails and ensure employee and deputy wellness, as well as address homelessness and property crime. Villanueva blamed his loss on the media's coverage of so-called deputy gangs within the sheriff's department, which he has repeatedly denied exist. He says his main achievement over his term was opening a window into corruption in L.A. County. He says the county fought tooth and nail to have that window shut. Villanueva said he would spend the next two weeks visiting the entire sheriff's department and thanking everybody. He said tearfully at a press conference that they're the true heroes. Several sheriffs in Oregon said they will not enforce the state's new gun law that places a limit on magazine capacity, arguing that the provision violates the Constitution's Second Amendment. Oregon voters approved the Reduction of Gun Violence Act during the recent midterm elections. The rule outlaws magazines that hold more than 10 rounds, similar to rules that have been implemented in New York, California, and other Democrat-controlled states. Several county sheriffs have publicly announced they won't enforce the law or parts of the law. Sheriff Cody Bowen of Union County in northeastern Oregon told Fox News that the problem is not magazine capacity or background checks, but mental health awareness and behavior health illness. He also said there is no way to enforce the magazine limit and that it wouldn't reduce shootings anyway. 
Over to Philadelphia, a Pennsylvania House of Representatives committee is trying to impeach the city's district attorney, Larry Krasner. They have two articles of impeachment against him. The articles blame Krasner for increasing Philadelphia's crime by being soft in his prosecution. They accuse him of obstructing their impeachment investigation. A report from the House says between January 1st, 2021 and the middle of this October, just shy of 1,000 people have died from homicide in Philadelphia. There were about 560 homicide deaths in 2015 and 2016 combined. Krasner responded to the House committee in a letter. In it, he said, quote, All leading criminological reports show zero correlation between crime and progressive reform prosecution. He also says every decision he makes as district attorney is with the goal of seeking justice and improving public safety. And up next, meet the engineers behind NASA's Artemis One moon rocket. They spent years helping to make the launch possible. We have that and more just after this break. Going back to the moon, this morning a new moon rocket by NASA took off heading towards Earth's largest satellite. And liftoff of Artemis 1. NASA's new moon rocket blasted off on its debut flight on early Wednesday. It had three test dummies aboard, which brings the U.S. a big step closer to putting astronauts back on the lunar surface for the first time since the end of the Apollo program 50 years ago. NASA plans to put real astronauts back on the moon's surface by 2025. The 32-story Space Launch System, or SLS rocket, surged off the launch pad from the Kennedy Space Center in Cape Canaveral, descended its Orion capsule on a three-week test journey. About 90 minutes after launch, the rocket's upper stage fired thrusters, propelling Orion out of the Earth's orbit, on course for the moon. That put the capsule on track for a 25-day flight that will bring it within 60 miles of the lunar surface. Today we got to witness the world's most powerful rocket take the earth by its edges and shake the wicket out of it. And it was quite a sight. It's quite a sight. The moonshot follows nearly three months of fuel leaks that kept the rocket bouncing between its hangar and the pad. Also back-to-back hurricanes. The rocket was forced back indoors by Hurricane Ian at the end of September, but later stood its ground outside as Nicole swept through last week with gusts of more than 80 miles per hour. But why are we trying to go back to the moon? Because our call is we're going out to explore the heavens. And uh, this is the next step. Learn how to live on the moon in order to prepare to send humans all the way to Mars. This moon undertaking is Apollo's successor program, and it's called Artemis. Artemis is the ancient Greek goddess of the hunt and Apollo's twin sister. Spectators at Spaceview Park, directly across from the launch pad, cheered as Artemis One blasted off into the night sky. One of them was a former NASA employee who worked on the Artemis rocket. He says he knows hundreds of others who worked together to make this work. So dedicated and diligent to make it work right. And that's what I thought about, and tears came to my eyes. I have to admit it, you know, but uh, I just was overwhelmed. The Orion capsule is expected to splash down into the Pacific Ocean on December 11th. NASA's new Artemis One rocket is the most powerful rocket yet, and it's the culmination of years of work for hundreds of people. Let's take a look at what's gone into the project. Behind NASA's Artemis One project are hundreds of workers. Many of them are based in two major facilities, one in Mississippi and one in Louisiana. 
A manager says the workers all live in those regions. And so when we think about uh, the technology and the advanced technology of space travel and large liquid rocket engines and, and, uh, and astronauts putting, uh, sitting on top of these engines and flying into space safely, and that's being done by Mississippians. That's being done by Louisianans. Many of the workers are second or even third generation, meaning their parents or grandparents also worked on NASA's space programs. An engineer says they take pride in that. Workforce is very important, right? We can't do this. You know, this wasn't a one or a two person job. You know, this was teams of hundreds of people that came in that different backgrounds, different experiences that all made this happen together. So this area has that kind of talent. Uh, you know, it's been rooted down here for generations and a lot of people see it as it's a badge of honor to work here. What did the workers here have to do to make the launch happen? The core parts of the rocket are first built and constructed in Louisiana and then sent to Mississippi for testing before being assembled at the Kennedy Space Center. A director describes the testing process. So we put the rocket in a stand, we fill it with propellants, and then we run the full engine test like we would fly. We want to make sure all the engines perform and this core stage performs as designed. And then we put it back onto the barge and ship it to Kennedy where they stack it in a vertical assembly center as we got Artemis 1, then you launch it. So Kennedy is the stacking and launching. Stannis is the testing of the, of the big stages. And Mishud is the fabrication and construction of the core stage. The goal of NASA's Artemis project is to create a long-term human presence on the moon and eventually send people to Mars. The entire program will cost $93 billion by the time astronauts are back on the moon. Several celebrities and popular athletes are facing the fallout of the sudden collapse of the cryptocurrency exchange FTX. The $32 billion company filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy last week. The implosion of the cryptocurrency exchange FTX, one of the most powerful figures in the industry, has left investors grappling with the aftershocks. How much of this is effectively an empty, you know, product. FTX's CEO, Sam Bankman-Fried, is facing multiple investigations after reports that he mishandled billions of dollars in customer funds, causing the 30-year-old to see his own $16 billion fortune erased overnight. Now the stunning collapse reverberating across the trillion-dollar industry. Gwyneth Paltrow, Reese Witherspoon, Kim Kardashian, and Matt Damon among the celebrities who have endorsed the crypto craze. With four simple words that have been whispered by the intrepid since the time of the Romans. Fortune favors the brave. So does fortune favor the brave? For those that invested $1,000 in crypto.com when actor Matt Damon started touting it just over a year ago, that investment is now worth less than $300 today, dropping almost 70%. Bloomberg reporting that billionaire Mark Cuban's investment in the Titan token tumbled 99% this August. Tampa Bay Buccaneers quarterback Tom Brady bought an equity stake in the now-failed FTX. You know what? I'm in. Along with Brady, tennis Grand Slam champion Naomi Osaka, basketball star Steph Curry, and baseball Hall of Famer David Ortiz among top athletes who will reportedly lose millions with the collapse of FTX. Whoa, 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 Moon, slow down. You getting into crypto? We FTX? But no franchise took a bigger hit than the Miami Heat basketball team who terminated their 19-year, $135 million naming rights deal with FTX, leaving them scrambling for a new sponsorship partner one month into the season. 
And the fallout from FTX is hitting Australia as well. Thousands of crypto investors there have found themselves in a precarious situation. They now face the risk of losing their entire investment following the collapse of the crypto exchange. Investors, crypto markets, and regulators were all caught off guard in a dramatic series of events that triggered a massive bank run and withdrawal. This caused FTX to collapse due to a lack of liquidity. The company's bankruptcy proceedings cover FTX U.S., but do not include the subsidiary FTX Australia. And in other news, Missouri Dr. Eric Naputi could face a civil penalty of more than $500 billion. The Federal Trade Commission has sued him for violating the COVID-19 Consumer Protection Act. The complaint alleges that the St. Louis chiropractor profited from selling vitamin D and zinc products online while promoting those drugs as a treatment or prevention against COVID-19. The government's lawsuit says such claims lack scientific merit and says Naputi took advantage of people's pandemic fears. But the doctor says the government is only targeting him because he sought other treatments for COVID-19 instead of the vaccine. He says they want to make an example out of him. According to the CDC, vitamin D does help the immune system fight off bacteria and viruses. The case will stand trial in a Missouri federal court in March. Turning to a drug smuggling case, authorities at a New York airport say they found $450,000 worth of cocaine in a wheelchair. The U.S. Customs and Border Protection reports the illegal drugs were seized at the John F. Kennedy Airport last week. According to the agency, officers discovered approximately 28 pounds of cocaine stuffed in the wheels of a wheelchair from a woman from the Dominican Republic. The officers x-rayed the wheels of the chair because they didn't turn, and that's how they found the cocaine. The woman was turned over to Homeland Security investigations and will face federal narcotics smuggling charges. And coming up, the United States, Canada, and Mexico as a union of states in the likeness of the European Union? One congressman sees cause for concern in some recent meetings and wants answers. And a top human rights group is putting pressure on Mexico over the 43 missing students from 2014. They say the country's military is withholding evidence. We'll have the details soon when we return. Welcome back. Over in Mexico, the country is facing pressure to explain the disappearance of 43 students eight years ago. Investigations suggest that this could be a state crime. Here's the story. The Inter-American Commission on Human Rights, or IACHR, is turning up the heat on Mexico over the 43 students who went missing in September 2014. The human rights body has a message for the Mexican government. We want to tell the Mexican state that we put the Ayotzinapa issue in the foreground, that the victims of this case deserve a response from the government. We made a road plan out of our report. The previous Mexican administration said the youths were murdered by corrupt police working with a local drug gang. The IACHR later created a group of experts to review the evidence, and they found that the Mexican army was withholding evidence. The army still has a position where they will not hand over all of the information. The current Mexican administration published new findings in August, calling the incident a state crime and pointed to army involvement. But authorities later withdrew over 20 arrest warrants that had been issued chiefly against military officials. 
We cannot deny there was a compromise and a political will from the government to comply, but in these last weeks, we have expressed our worries. The human rights group said the government's efforts to cover up the incident appeared to be part of a structural pattern of abuses in Mexico. They're asking the Mexican government to clear up what role the military played in the incident. Talk of an EU style of government in the Americas has raised red flags with U.S. Congressman Matt Gates. The congressman wants answers from Secretary of State Antony Blinken. Entity's Daniel Monahan has the story. Mexico's president says he has been holding discussions with U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken. The topic is the possibility of merging the American continent into one government based on the model of the European Union. President Andres Manuel López Obrador says Blinken talked about consolidating the North American region and that it is something they both agreed on. The Mexican president continued that he is in favor of the unity of the entire American continent, the integration of Canada, the United States, all of the Americas. Representative Matt Gates sounded the alarm on Fox News. I don't want my constituents having to live under the socialist, tyrannical lockdowns enacted by Justin Trudeau Castro while their nephews being poisoned by Mexican fentanyl. But that apparently is the globalist order that the Biden administration supports here as they give away our money and our chance of a brighter future overseas. Concerned that Blinken appears to be having such discussions abroad, he sent a letter to the secretary to find out more. He asks the following questions. One, is it your position that the North American continent should be united by a regional constitution to further the economic interests of its member states? And two, is the position of the Department of State that the United States, Canada, and Mexico should become a union of states formed in the likeness of the European Union? A spokesman from Gates's office recently said that the congressman hadn't yet received a response from Blinken. Blinken traveled to Latin America to attend the Organization of American States General Assembly. That is a United Nations-style organization that was formed in 1948. At the completion of the summit, the 35 member countries adopted the Lima Declaration titled Together Against Inequality and Discrimination. During his remarks in Lima, Blinken said in his words, when all communities have equal access to development, all of society benefits, and because more equal democracies tend to be more stable and secure partners. The Lima Declaration describes its goals within the diversity, equity, inclusion framework. It is a framework that is criticized for favoring diversity over merit and an assumption that white people are inherently racist. The declaration focuses on economic issues, climate change, and bolstering inclusion for minority groups, especially around gender. It states that there is a need to achieve significant financing increases and investment from a wide variety of public and private sources. It also calls for international development cooperation to achieve diverse, fair, and more prosperous societies. American taxpayers fund nearly 50% of the Organization of American States budget, which in 2023 is set to be more than $90 billion. Regional analyst Orlando Guterres Boranat told the Epic Times that a consolidated North American region could offer mutual economic benefits and create regional stability. However, he says a supranational union of that sort must be based on solid principles of freedom and democracy, not on what he calls the absurd ambiguity towards the tyranny of, for instance, President López Obrador in Mexico. Some critics of Mexico's president believe the country's democracy is fragmenting under Obrador. They cite the silencing of critics, defunding regulatory agencies and looting state-controlled trusts. The same week Blinken was in Peru, he met with Colombia's newly elected leftist president Gustavo Petro. 
Petro is a former member of the M19 guerrilla group, which was a 1970s-era Marxist organization. They discussed climate action, the migration crisis, and a holistic approach to countering narcotics trafficking in the region. In Chile, Blinken met with socialist president Gabriel Boric to discuss similar issues. Boric has open ties to Chile's Communist Party. Meanwhile, there's another player wooing the United States' southern neighbors. China is now South America's largest trading partner. With its Belt and Road Initiative, the CCP has sunk sizable investments into the region and is now one of its biggest lenders. The CCP has built ports, roads, dams, and major power projects throughout Latin America over the past 20 years. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. If you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. And still to come, we have an update on the missile that landed in Poland. A new statement from Poland calms fears that the Russia-Ukraine war might spread to neighboring countries. More in just a moment here on NTD News Today. A missile hit Poland during an exchange of fire between Russia and Ukraine. Poland and NATO now say the blast may have been a stray from Ukrainian air defense forces, not a Russian strike. Yesterday, Russia attacked Ukraine. Ukrainian air defense, missile defense, fired a lot of missiles to neutralize this Russian attack. It is estimated that maybe half, maybe a bit more than a half of all Russian rockets were shot down. The rest hit the Ukrainian territory. It is unfortunately highly probable that one of the missiles fired by the Ukrainian air defenses fell on our territory. The statement relieves global fears that the war in Ukraine could spill over the border. The missile landed on Polish territory four miles from the Ukrainian border, killing two people. Poland's president said it was a Soviet-made S-300 rocket, but there was no evidence it was launched from the Russian side. The blast occurred as Russia launched dozens of missiles at several locations in Ukraine. Kyiv said it shot down most of the incoming Russian missiles with its own air defense missiles. The Russian defense ministry has denied hitting any civilian targets, but NATO said Russia still bears ultimate responsibility because it started the war. According to Polish authorities, the country is now working with allies and internally to investigate the situation. Britain and the European Union on Monday imposed sanctions on two Iranian ministers and several senior police and military officials over their alleged roles in the security crackdown against anti-government protests. EU ministers imposed asset freezes and travel bans on 29 Iranian officials, including Iran's interior minister. The bloc says he's responsible for serious human rights violations in Iran due to police actions during the protests. In what appeared to be a coordinated move, Britain announced Iran's communications minister and several other officials would face similar restrictions in the UK. According to the activist HRANA news agency, so far over 300 demonstrators have been killed in the unrest and over 15,000 detained. Iranians have been protesting their government's severe restrictions following the death of 22-year-old Masa Amini in police custody. Amini was arrested for allegedly violating the Islamic Republic's strict dress code. After a one-year suspension, the Russian national soccer team is now readying to play its first FIFA-approved international match. However, this doesn't mean the team was completely lifted from the ban. 
The match is a friendly against Tajikistan tomorrow in the country's capital of Dushanbe. That's more than a year after the last official ousting from the Russian team when it lost to Croatia 1-0 on November 14, 2021. The team was scheduled to play in playoffs for the 2022 FIFA World Cup, but after Russia invaded Ukraine, the team was banned from competing. Russian clubs are also barred from the Champions League and all UEFA competitions. But FIFA has given the green light for the upcoming match, saying they will approve it as long as the local confederation agrees. UEFA says the friendly matches aren't part of UEFA's competitions and are thus not in conflict with their former decision to suspend Russian teams. And now turning our attention over to Israel. The country's new parliament was sworn in on Tuesday. This is following the election that took place on November 1st. Israeli President Isaac Herzog officially opened Israel's 25th parliament session on Tuesday. The 120 members of parliament were sworn in during a festive ceremony. The ceremony included the pounding of a gavel and sounds of trumpets. In the November 1st elections, former Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and his conservative coalition won a majority of seats. He and his allies will control 64 seats in the new parliament, replacing outgoing Prime Minister Yair Lapid. Netanyahu's majority ended political instability in Israel, which held five elections in less than four years. Staying in Israel, the nation says it won't cooperate with a U.S. investigation into the death of a Palestinian-American journalist. The reporter was fatally shot in May while covering an Israeli raid in an occupied West Bank city. The correspondent reported on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict for more than two decades. Israel's defense minister says the U.S. investigation is interfering in internal affairs. He says Israel already conducted an independent investigation and shared the results with the U.S., They said an Israeli soldier likely shot her, but no laws were broken. Meanwhile, the Palestinian Ministry of Foreign Affairs welcomed the FBI's investigation. They say it indicates that Israel is covering something up. And coming up, for the first time, tech giants team up to make their smart home devices work together. Find out how it works and which products will have the new update. And a famous street for Christmas lights in London makes compromises to save energy. Stay tuned for more on that when we return. Good to have you back. Paris is considering banning its 15,000 rental electric scooters due to concerns about public safety on the city's sidewalks. However, operators are proposing a series of improvements in the hope of getting their licenses renewed. The Paris Town Council is considering not renewing the licenses of the three operators, which expire in February 2023. Its vote is only a recommendation. The final decision rests with the mayor of Paris. Paris officials say that the nuisances caused by scooters now outweigh the advantages to the city. In 2021, 24 people died in scooter-related accidents in France, including one in Paris. This year, Paris registered 337 accidents with e-scooters and similar vehicles in the first eight months of the year. That's up from 247 over the same period in 2021. Tech giants are joining forces to make their smart home devices work together. NTD's Andrew Thomas has more on the new standard called Matter. Matter is a communication standard that lets smart home devices communicate. It can include lights, speakers, and fans. 
For the first time, big names like Apple, Amazon, Google, Samsung and others are making these devices work together. Matter is a local network. It is on the devices in the home. It doesn't rely on the cloud or the internet. So you can have direct control over all of the devices in your home network. And that delivers a, a seamless experience for consumers in their home, that everything just works with each other. Matter started two years ago and is now launching its first version. It was developed by the Connectivity Standards Alliance. The way that the Matter standard works is effectively uses anything that has an internet protocol network layer or internet protocol like a Wi-Fi or thread. And so what Matter does is it's a language that sits on top of all of those different protocols themselves and makes life easy for developers and consumers to connect all of those together. Smart home ecosystems like Apple HomeKit, Amazon Alexa, and Google Home used to work separately. They often needed separate apps to be set up and controlled. Matter certified devices will make them compatible, allowing consumers to pick devices across all brands. Before the launch of Matter, we've been all kind of competing against each other to grow its own ecosystem of smart devices, but that ended up you know, creating a fragmented marketplace. Most of the brands involved plan to update their existing products to make them compatible with the new Matter standard. We think that Matter is a really, really innovative and strong, you know, strongly positioned towards the future of smartphones. And so we think that it's going to be really important going forward. And we also want to make sure that we communicate that people's existing smart home devices aren't going to be left behind, that we'll continue to support them no matter how they're connected to Alexa. As of November 3rd, 190 devices were either certified or in the process of being certified by Matter. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. The famous Christmas lights on Oxford Street in London have been switched on, bringing cheer to shoppers. But for the first time in a bid to save energy, they'll be turned off after 11 p.m. Christmas lights are bringing some cheer to the major shopping area in Oxford Street in London. But this winter, for the first time, the display is not lit up for the full 24 hours. So this year, uh, they're only on for the eight hours. And actually, I should mention that all of the bulbs are LED bulbs, which make them 75% more efficient than standard bulbs. So we feel we're doing all we really can. In Covent Garden, a 60-foot-tall Christmas tree is towering over the market square. It's decorated with over 30,000 LED lights. Sustainability is a big factor for the company that manages the market. The Christmas tree is UK sourced. It's really important to us to make sure that we're sourcing that from within the UK. And then what are we doing when we're actually finished using the tree? We're looking at recycling um, the tree so it can be repurposed for other things. And that's something we've been doing for many years now. December is the biggest month of the year for most retailers. But with inflation at a 40-year high, retailers could face a less profitable Christmas. Our last data was out at the beginning of November and showed that retail sales grew by just over 1.5% in October. We expect that to continue in the lead up to Christmas, but once you strip out the effect of inflation, then the actual volume of goods that are being bought is actually down year on year. The economy might be gloomy in the UK this year, but at least the lights will add some Christmas cheer. I haven't seen them for quite a while, so it's actually really refreshing to actually come up and see and actually improved display from previous years. Much more vibrant and they actually have a bit more uh, glitz about them. 
London has a new winter attraction. The redeveloped Battersea Power Station has launched the city's only riverside ice rink. Visitors can also experience traveling to the top of the 360-foot-tall chimney in a glass lift and have a 360-degree view of the British capital's skyline. London's Battersea Power Station opened a new ice rink on Monday. Some keen skaters couldn't wait to show off their skills. This is uh, London's uh, newest winter attraction and we're incredibly excited to be bringing you Glide. Uh, we've got an amazing new ice rink, it's brand new, it's London's only riverside ice rink. And obviously when you look at the, uh, the backdrop that we have behind us, it's easy to see why we've uh, chosen this place to, to, to put it. The ice rink is composed of three interconnecting rinks with a nine metre tall Christmas tree as its centrepiece. Another unique experience, Lift 109, opens to the public on Tuesday. It's a glass elevator that takes visitors to the top of one of the landmark's chimneys, where they can enjoy a 360-degree view of London's skyline. So we are standing at the top of the northwest chimney. We are 109 metres in the air on top of Batty Power Station, and I think only for the pure sheer exhilarance of being up at this height, seeing London, seeing its whole 360 degree panorama and a unique once in a lifetime opportunity to do it, I think is the reason for people to come down here. The 1930s power station once supplied a fifth of London's electricity, including Buckingham Palace and Parliament. A nine billion pound redevelopment will see thousands of people living and working in and around the once derelict station. And so I think for people to be able to actually now come inside the building and actually see exactly how it's been restored, um, brought back to life essentially for, for our generation now, is a really, really exciting moment. Um, and it's not just brought back as a, as a power station or a monument to it, it's actually now somewhere where you can come and spend your whole day. So whether it's going to a shop, going to the cinema, hotel, there's lots of different things that are going on here. I think it's a really, really exciting place to be. Visitors can also ride a festive Ferris wheel and carousel at the site as well as book one of the three private pods called igloos. Still to come, a new museum in New York celebrates the culture and history of Broadway. It's opening right in Times Square. Details to come on NTD News Today. Broadway is renowned for shows like The Phantom of the Opera, The Lion King, and Wicked. Now a new museum is celebrating its culture and history. Entity's Andrew Thomas has more on the new institution. The Museum of Broadway is taking center stage. Visitors can learn about the history of Broadway shows and also the making of them. What we really landed on after we talked to a couple curators and other people within the Broadway industry was three parts. We have the map room that tells the history of how the theater district came to be. Um, and so it used to actually be in the financial district and it migrated north to, to present day Times Square. The museum moves from the past to the present to the future. We have the timeline of Broadway where we have exhibits of game-changing and groundbreaking shows as well as then the, the actual timeline of Broadway. Um, and then we have the making of a Broadway show, which is all the behind-the-scenes roles that actually make a show uh, come to life. Julie Boardman is a co-founder of the museum. 
She hopes visitors gain a further appreciation of Broadway. A lot of the timeline as you're walking through this immersive timeline of Broadway, you're getting this sense of basically the art that we have today wouldn't be possible had all of these other people not paved the way and, and broken ground and pioneered and really changed the landscape of Broadway. It's a very uniquely American art form that's developed here. The Museum of Broadway is in the middle of Times Square, an appropriate location. It, it should be here and it should be in Times Square and you know we kind of pinch ourselves that we're the ones doing it but no one ever did so here we are. <laughs> in addition to the permanent exhibits the organizers are planning special events focused on Broadway. The museum's website says after the historic intermission caused by the pandemic we cannot wait to open our doors this fall. The Museum of Broadway opened on November 15th. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. New York delis are beloved by locals and visitors alike. Now an exhibition at the New York Historical Society is exploring the origins of these eateries. NTD's Andrew Thomas has more on the legacy of lox and latkes. The New York Historical Society is opening an exhibition called I'll Have What She's Having, the Jewish Deli. The name comes from the famous scene in the movie when Harry met Sally. Jake Dell is the fifth-generation owner of the famed Katz's Delicatessen in New York's Lower East Side. He attended the opening of the exhibition. When we see visitors, not just from around the world, but from around you know, any parts of the city or people who have never been to us before, part of what we do is teach the history of Delicatessen. And I think this place does a great job of also teaching that history. The exhibition explores American Delhi's Jewish roots and how Eastern European Jewish traditions became everyday norms for New Yorkers. I think the idea of the Jewish Delhi, right, is, is sort of the roots of it. It's a Jewish food tradition, but that doesn't mean it's meant, you know, by Jewish people for Jewish people, right? It's, it's a very much for everyone. It's we're New Yorkers, right, and we're all New Yorkers at the end of the day. Old institutions like Katz's and Second Avenue Deli are going as strong as ever. Many will leave the exhibit and head straight to a deli. First and foremost, you got to eat, right? And so it doesn't matter who you are, where you come from, what you do. Everyone can bond over a pastrami sandwich or a matzo ball soup or a latke. And, and I think that's the beauty of this food is that it is so accessible to everyone. The exhibition is on display at the New York Historical Society until April. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Are you someone who dreads the onset of winter? Have you ever wondered why? Is there something you can do about it? Here's Gina Marie who brings us Strong Mind and Body. winter around the corner, some people will experience a mental and emotional slump. This is known as seasonal affective disorder. According to Boston University School of Medicine, an estimated 10 million Americans will suffer a range of symptoms. These include mental and emotional challenges. So what is actually going on? Scientists have mixed opinions about seasonal affective disorder and its causes. Some suggest lower serotonin levels. Serotonin is a brain chemical and neurotransmitter that works as a mood stabilizer. And other scientists will say increased melatonin production levels may disrupt the circadian rhythms. This is a complex issue. Let's look at some drug-free interventions. Firstly, increase your exposure to bright light. 
Try to make your living environment lighter and brighter. Choose more sunlight in the morning and during the day. You'll also want to avoid blue light at night. That will help you to maintain healthy melatonin production. Healthy lifestyle habits are also important. Exercise is well known for reducing anxiety, improving sleep and triggering the feel-good endorphins. Also, be sure to make good food choices. Include lean protein, vegetables and complex carbohydrates to stabilize blood sugar and your energy levels. Social connections are also important. They are a protective factor against depression. Catching up with friends in person or in phone conversation shifts the negative thoughts and brings perspective. The ancient Chinese have an interesting view of winter mood changes. Winter mood changes reflect the interconnection between humans and nature. Aligning with the season to live a harmonious life is the aim. The summer energy of yang suggests growth and expansion, while the winter energy of yin is the time to draw inward and tend to your inner world. If during the busy summer you avoided internal change, now is the time to allow for calm reflection and self-discovery. Yosemite National Park has done away with its controversial reservation system. Officials announced the news Tuesday. The busy park started requiring reservations during the first two years of the pandemic. It was a crowd control measure during the peak summer season. The policy was continued for a third year due to construction. But the construction won't be happening next year. Some people liked the rule because it cut down on the park's well-known congestion. But last-minute travelers unable to enter didn't like it, nor did gateway communities that relied on tourist dollars from people traveling to Yosemite. That's all for today's program. We're really glad to have you with us. Please send us an email if you'd like to tell us something. We're going to put it on screen. For podcasters, that's news.today at ntd.com. I'm Kevin Hogan, NTD News, New York City. Thank you.